As a Papuan Australian woman, I acknowledge that I am a settler on this land that I live, work and create on. I acknowledge there are ongoing native title cases on this land today due to the impacts of colonisation and I want to pay my respects to the many Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples of this country and to their elders past, present and emerging. Hi listeners, thanks for tuning in to part two in this episode, Women of Good Heart, Mind and Spirit. Previously, we last heard from Auntie Lisa Hilly sharing her experiences of entering this industry. Let's get back to where we left off. Thank you. And for me, I couldn't have achieved what I did uh, without... Um, I think for me, being a curator, I didn't know what that was. And I looked it up in in the dictionary and it said, caretaker. And I'm going, okay. As, oh. uh, another thing that I, once I got into the space, there was no other person I could ask. So I learned a lot through hurt because you ask people and A, you either ask the wrong person or the wrong person, the wrong person, because people are protecting this space because if we remove that that career from them, what have they got? There was a conference that was happening at Melbourne University and this person, I shall not name her, she said, uh, she brought Michael Mel, there was a, a, a PhD student from Fiji, a PhD student from Tonga. They went and they said, I'd like you to come and meet this curator at the NTV. So when she walked in, she just said, meet Sanas and I met these people. And then she goes, you know, it's people like her pointing to me. It's people like her take this job and people like me cannot get a job in, in, in this institution. Plus, I am I am highly qualified in this field and I've got the, the last years experience in Pacific art. And you could see the my fellow club, my fellow islanders, their faces turned red, and to diffuse the situation rather than make it worse, I said, "Oh, thank you very much for the gl- glowing acknowledgement." And may I add, while you have, while you have thirty years of experience, I have thirty thousand years of experience because that's how all my islanders. And while you're highly qualified, I'm overqualified. <laughs> I gave a hug and said, "Come on, let's go see her." And my comment to this day is, "You say." How did you handle that? And I said, that's not the first because I'm here for a reason. And when I first arrived there, I noticed that the Pacific collection uh, was not, the Pacific is one of the biggest thing. And I used to tell myself, you know, that the message they tell us is we are tiny islands in the big ocean. So I had to tell myself the reverse. I, am, I belong to the biggest ocean. Yes, you tell me we are tiny islands in the big ocean. But how I look at it is I am the owner, I'm part of the owner of the, I am part of the people who own the biggest ocean in the in, in the world. I remember when I got asked, I got asked this question when I went for the from first interview with uh, with the museum. Someone said, now we've got highly qualified people we could have for this job. You tell us why you should be the one. You don't have any qualification, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and I said, uh, what art form are we dealing with here? And they said, uh, cultural stuff from the Pacific and First Nations. And I said, okay, you tell me which universities the people who made those things went to. And this art inspired the likes of Matisse, the likes of 
Gogan and that lives of uh, Picasso. You tell me which university that uh, people who carved this went to because I went to the same school. It's called University of the Changon. Well, it's in the <laughs> <laughs> it's called University of the Changon. Every village has it. In here, we don't have it, but every house still has it. You go, every mother from, from, from the island or from the First Nation will tell you some form of culture. And that's your education, that's your university. Mm. And that's how, that's how they hired me. And, oh. and, and as much as I acknowledge, you acknowledge me, Lisa, mm. I'd also like to acknowledge you and 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 Ruha and the, the current the generation that are actually really doing the job here. You are the generation that actually now carrying forward and have the power and the and the strength and that putting your voice into the, uh, to that and you are you, your generation is now affirming or crystallizing what some of my generation was just dreaming about. Yes, I was breaking ground there, but you are another one putting that in place. Thank you, your generation. Yeah, you're almost moving into this um, conversations about culturally safe spaces. Mm. Um, and Auntie Sana, you were this pioneering woman, um, the first in these spaces. I feel uncomfortable with that. <laughs> the first in these spaces and you just made way for um, all these other aunties to come through. Um, I wonder if you could share, if each of you could share a little bit about the culturally safe space and how do we create this space? And is there a particular story that comes to mind where you really learnt about how do we create these spaces? Maybe I'll let you both speak first because I take up too much time. <laughs> I'll let you both because I'll give you space first and I'll come in later. Yeah. <laughs> feel free to feel take a bit of, yeah, feel free to take a bit of time to think about your answer yeah. as well. Lisa, you, you're very smart. I love how you answer things. So I'll let you <laughs> yeah. um creating culturally safe spaces is um uh having an awareness of like the cultural sensitivities to do with that particular culture and the people. Um but also like because we're operating from a space in Australia, you've also got to acknowledge the cultural sensitive sensitivities of First Peoples. And so um, creating culturally safe spaces means doing things differently that sort of accommodate, um, I guess if we're talking about a Pacific people context, is accommodate Pacific people's needs. Like, that's what it's about. It's just, but the, the challenge with that, if we're working in institutions, is you're going up hard against their kind of protocols. And so that's where, um, I guess, individuals like ourselves can get really caught um, because we're trying to sort of, you know, push to sort of shift those sort of parameters around how to create culturally safe spaces for community to sort of come into collections and, and galleries and museums. Um, but uh, essentially it's, I think, we, I think, I know for me it's just going back to like what did I grow up with? Mm. It's that inherent understanding of like what are the values that we were taught as children growing up in our families and our communities, you know? you know, um, little things, like the, the things that I remember learn, learning in my home was, you know, like always having to make cups of tea for the elders, um, you know, letting the aunt, like letting elders speak first or, um, 
Um, always having food, like always got to have food, you know, whenever we go to someone's home, always bringing food. So always having food. Um, mm. If you do invite community into the space, like um, paying community, if you're going to ask them for cultural knowledge, you know, honoring their knowledge, um, not, not exploiting that. Um, are there protocols that they want to do that they need to do to feel spiritually safe when they come into the institutions? Like, it's it's there's so many so many things and you know the the simple way to actually understand what it needs how people need to create cultural safety is just ask them just ask them what do they need what do they need to feel safe in order to come into this space because there's a lot of trauma in institutions regarding our our people and our histories with colonialism and so you know there's a lot of trust that has to be built and so in order to kind of gain that trust, build those relationships with community, you have to create culturally safe spaces. And so it's knowing what to say, not what not what to say. And and the thing is, like, there's going to be mistakes and that's not, it's, and I think everyone's really afraid of making mistakes. They don't want to get anything wrong, but it's like, if you don't get, do it wrong, then you don't learn. <laughs> and it's just being humble when you do make a mistake, not being defensive, just going, okay, you know what, we, we stuffed up here. Um, and so that's that's how you learn. And so there's lots like there's there's it's it's a, there's a whole range of things that need that need to be sort of um, accounted for for culturally safe spaces. It just really depends on the particular communities because not one culture one one set of uh, cultural safety sort of protocols or things don't always apply to every single Pacific community. There's there's variations, and so it's just understanding the nuances between that. Yeah, I think to just this definition of what is culturally safe. I like the point you make, Lisa, about it's not necessarily case by case, but it is something that's evolving and it does depend on the context and the purpose and what people are stepping in a space to try and achieve. Um, Or, yeah, and it kind of reminds me of a conversation with an artist and academic from Fiji. Um, He's Tongan Ngoni Fakauta. And he's been doing a bit of research just Mm -hmm. on the use of language Mm -hmm. and how that helps us um, think about how we understand these different terminologies used in like a Western society, mm-hmm. but understand them for ourselves, kind mm-hmm. of like your renaming of the curator role. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and one of the terms that really uh, stands out for me in terms of um, creating culturally safe spaces is this idea of like Mao, so it's about like M-A-A-U. Mm-hmm. And it's where you know, it's something that is not just focused on the outcome, but the whole process of getting to a point mm. has to be done in a certain way. So it's mm. like, what are the considerations you make mm. for, as you said, like the social, the spiritual aspects of getting to an outcome? And often I think in, you know, we're very focused on outcomes in the society almost. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, well, the way we get there is actually not even just um, just as important. It's almost more important. Mm-hmm. Something to emphasize is that we see, you know, it comes from a culture that thinks long-term, that thinks about relationship building mm-hmm. um, as like a primary <laughs> kind of um, currency to mm-hmm. achieve anything. And so this idea of um, making sure that things are mild, you know, that the right people speak in the right order, mm-hmm. that, um, you know, you've given things the right amount of time to think about and consider that there's an environment where people are going to ask questions if they don't understand. Um, how do you do that? And it's, so it's almost, yeah, it's, it's how do we understand maybe creating safe spaces about creating a relationship where 
people feel comfortable to have an open conversation about mm. their needs mm. and where they see that we're prioritizing the process over the outcome mm. um, with them and that that's mm. being honored. And that can look different, I think, for different cultures. Mm. Um, but I think something that we've been learning is it takes a little bit of, um, we've been very fortunate myself and Molly actually to be kind of um, alongside Ruth and the team being able to have a bit of license to explore this idea of community engagement through a pilot like ACE project and one of the things that stood out from all of the conversations we had in trying to figure out how to approach this was involve Pacific community not just in the delivery but in thinking about how we get there like in the not just co-design of the outcome but actually um you know, being part of the conversation really from the beginning. And we're kind of learning that we started the conversation, I think almost two years, a year and a half out with some of the people we wanted to work on this with. And even then it's, you could spend longer, you know, if your outcome is like down the road, there's never too much time to kind of start involving people in that. Um, so thinking long-term, but yeah, I think the, it is, it can be quite different from what, the resources we have to work with if you're a curator and you ask, okay, we need to do this and we need to do it next month. That can already put you in a really difficult yeah. position to create um, safety. Yeah. When you talk about creating a safe space for us here, my whole being, my whole role is learning from the mistakes and uh, mistakes that not the mistake, but learning from experience that I've dealt with. I got asked to, to interpret the main staff from the CP. And I said it's not my space. Again, mm. it comes to a it comes to a place and a time where if this object was in the in the in the CP, it comes to space. When it was in in that in where it came from, I wouldn't have been allowed to, to see it. But because it's here, it's a different, it's a different safeness. Now, while it's here, that the kind of safety that I now have to create is that it is respected. That because I'm the closest to where it came from, I can actually I, I can actually see and have have more right than and uh, the researcher coming in. However, I have to do it by making sure that there is no one in the community that can speak on that. The future generation that they come that, that they have now have have to learn and have to be shown shown how it's done without actually not taking everything away. One of the, if, call it, if I can call it a mistake that elders tend to do, and it happened a lot in the Pacific when we were in Melbourne, when you go into a meeting, automatically we expect the younger generation to fall in line and respect us. Yes, but it has to go both ways. For one reason, while that may, might work in the, in the Pacific, because this is the ground, you fall in line because of the culture. We also have to be mindful that we are now in a space where kids were allowed, you, you, it's a lot freer for you to speak here. So we have to be mindful of that space that you have a voice. I'm here, yes, I'm, an, I'm still an elder, but I have to allow you that space to be yourself because one day you'll be in my seat. It's interesting in all of the stories, just um, even for ourselves, being able to learn about um, this role in different institutions has been because other people have created, like almost have to make that space for us <laughs> as well as part mm -hmm. of it. And often it's most powerful when it comes from people who are not necessarily Pacific Islanders themselves, yes. but have an understanding. Like I just mm -hmm. think about, um, or just 
they fight for that space for other people because they see the importance. Mm. I know in our the institution I'm in now, you know, you see it happening all the time, like the role of the Pacific Curator with mm. Google. It's a constant, there's a real determination to, if mm. there's an opportunity to make space, then mm. there's that real um, commitment to do that. Yeah. For us, there's like Pacifica people working in there, for artists that are coming in, there's just this conviction. And I know it's mm. the same. Mm. I mean, I remember coming into the institution with that feeling of, you know, even in meetings, it's like you don't speak until you're asked to speak. Mm. <laughs> but that's so different from what's expected here. Mm. Of, mm. No, if, you know, if you have something to say, you just say it. And if, yeah. I think that probably leads into um, this next question of um, an element of the project is to have these conversations um, with women and at the end of the report to then pose questions to institutions and organisations about how do we be culturally safe and how do we respect um, the knowledge that these elders and um, these... Uh, workers have and I suppose the next question is um, if you had to pose a question or questions for you know these CEOs to reflect on what would you ask them to think of um, to help make change in these places? First Nations or Indigenous peoples and I, I use it as peoples because all over the world we were subjects of studies we still are subjects and we will always be subjects if nothing is happening it would be it would be racism on the reverse if we came and kicked out those who held the space for us for a very long time so what needs to happen is the platform needs to expand the subject comes up the caretakers who the people who dealt or looked after our cultural heritage come down and we have a conversation. We need to have this conversation in order to move forward. In order for us to move forward, those who have been here, rather than kick them out, they have to move to the side and slowly give, create space, create space for, 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 the, for the First Nation, in this case, the Pacific Islander, to come in and do the work and, 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 and connect with the Connect with the co- connect with the objects and give the space. The common problem in the past had been they were not qualified, and now there's a lot of us that has masters, PhD, and that keeps changing. We need that part to be there so the specific people get given an opportunity to to, to to work in that space to handle the cultural uh, stuff. As I often say, the role of institutions, the role of CEOs is to create opportunities for the, for the young kids to come in and see the potential and be treated like the others, except they are the owners, they, are, they belong to these collections. And the role of the elders, such as myself, is to guide and guard. What I would say to, um, I guess, leaders and institutions, um, I guess, first and foremost is um, that they, they, you know, when you're like the director of an institution, if you're a leading institution, you hold like a great considerable amount of power and influence. Mm-hmm. And I think I've, I saw a real change happen when change was taken from top down. Because what always happens is it's always like brown people or marginalised people at the bottom fighting up. 
<laughs> you know, trying to make changes from up and it's always at the demise and at the cost of their bodies, you know, mm. um, their bodies, their minds and their spirits. But when there's leadership that actually understands and gets it and they make those changes top down, like you can have really significant change. And so I think if our leaders of institutions can actually do the work of like cultural awareness, cultural safety, like just become really like aware and conscious of like, you know, if you're in the margins of society, like you're always going to get left out. You're always going to get overlooked. And so if you look, look at the margins first and then bring them into the center, then everyone wins. Mm. I think that's, that's what I would say. Um, and I think it's complex in Australia because, you know, there, there needs to be significant restitution for First Peoples. And so, you know, anyone like that needs to happen first. And then, you know, I think and then it's everyone else after that. <laughs> like that has to, it has to be that in that order. The other thing is um, I can't stand how there's always only like one Pacific curator. It's like, you know what? It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Like, come on. I think I've only seen the Australian Museum. They've, they've split it over two curators, like Western Pacific and Eastern Pacific. And it's like, well, you wouldn't give one curator the job of like curating all the art from Europe. Exactly. Why, why do we have to do, why do we have to carry the whole weight of the, like the, the one third of the planet in terms of the Pacific region? That's what I always say that it's like there has to be more than one Pacific curator in an institution because look at Melanesia alone, like, come on, so much diversity. Like how can you expect one person to just hold all of that and then the rest of the Pacific, like it's just ridiculous. And so that's, I mean, that's that's what I always advocate for. There needs to be more than one. Always there's been more than one because, I mean, even the Pacific Curator at Museums Victoria, like they were looking after the international Indigenous collection and the bulk of that collection was Pacific. Mm-hmm. Then there was African, then there was Asian, and then there was Egypt because Egypt isn't a part of Africa. <laughs> and so you've got this one curator looking after pretty much the half of the world as well as the Pacific, and it's ridiculous. And so there just needs to be more resources invested in the Pacific because it's where Australia's closest neighbour, like we're your neighbours, you know, we're in the neighbourhood. And so it's like just, you know, help your neighbours out. Like we're here, we're not going anywhere. And I think that relationship between Australia and the Pacific is it's never been about building relationships or reciprocity, which is very, very um, specific um, across all Pacific cultures and even in Indigenous cultures in Australia. Like, it's never been about reciprocity of building relationships. It's always been about extraction and resources. Mm. And so, you know, it's like just build relationships with us because we are here forever. We've been here for a long time. We're not going anywhere. So it's like you've just got to do this work and just mm. be, be a good neighbour, Australia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. At this point, you made about um, thinking about different conceptions of power and how that, yeah, how that's like manifest in an institution or different things. And also the point you made about, you know, First Nations, that it's a very specific context in Australia to be talking about being a Pacific First Nations Mm. person. Um, And I wonder if it's, you know, more than looking at... um, I mean, in in addition to looking at kind of, there's definitely this priority area of yes. First Nations, but seeing that the learning also relates to both. Yeah, that's right. That, you know, you almost like by learning to do certain things um, 
And it's not just for the benefit of those Indigenous or First Nations communities. It's actually maybe a better way to deal with any. Mm. (laughs) Or, you know, being open to think about things that way. Um, I often think maybe there's a lot of different, like, things that you can speak to a CEO about. But I wonder as, like, a starting point sometimes what's come to me in my experience is just feeling that, Um, there's a difference in the vision of what you're working towards. And I wonder if just having a common understanding, so it's not so much about, okay, you just let us do it, or, you know, it's not necessarily a transfer, but seeing that there's a whole different thing of possibility when the time is made. I think it was mentioning this idea Mm. of like having a conversation about what are we working towards? What do you see as if there was in 20 years time, you have a Pacific curator here now, you're thinking about community engagement, you're wanting to exhibit and care for Pacific work. Is this the ideal for you? Or is there something we're working Mm. towards that's the ideal? And what does that look like? And trying to find a common language because I think so much of the work is that you're actually working in different directions within your own institution. Um, So you can't have, yeah. And then that is always every step becomes like you have to go back and reframe why and go back and it, creates so I feel like maybe almost a first step and there's some things some ways that that happens like I was just reflecting on like the rap plan and things that institutions go through that process mm. um, but I really feel there's like a lot to learn about really clearly defining together with people at all levels like what is the vision that we're working towards and then we see our steps of first to get there we need to learn this first mm. and then we're not going to, you know, there's no expert. It's actually, I think what we're trying to achieve in these new contexts. I mean, Lisa, you spoke about it yourself. Like we live in neighborhoods where sometimes there's no two houses from the same country. Mm-hmm. Or like these are our neighborhoods, these are our communities. And it's not a reality that has ever existed in the mm-hmm. world before um, or that has. And so it's almost this thing of nobody knows the ideal way to balance um, you know, in a within a community or something, giving attention to all of these different cultures or um, learning about the role that Indigenous and First Nations mm. can play to even shaping fundamentally the thinking and approach that an institution might take to engaging with artists. Um, yeah, so if it's, I think it's just that checkpoint of kind of going, okay, we don't know, we have to figure it out together and it has to start with at least feeling like we're moving in the same direction Mm -hmm. and when we feel that splitting we have to revisit it and go wait a minute we have different understandings now how has that shifted for all of those involved but yeah kind of steps away from certain things one of the things that i was always mindful of um more than 25 years ago and that went until is how the west the institution tried to frame the pacific uh, when it comes to art and art form, because my experience had been, if it was, if you're talking about art from the Pacific, if it was contemporary, I automatically think it's Polynesia, Maori, and yeah. Micronesia. And when it came to historical material in, in, in the museum, they automatically think Melanesia. However, when you look at, look, look at it, we need to revisit the word contemporary. Contemporary didn't exist in our space. Because art, we have, say, if they said it's contemporary and they look at Maori and, and Polynesian, Micronesia, the question I ask is, did they have a past? And, and if they, they talk about 
traditional historical material, the thing to Melanesia, mm-hmm. uh, the, the question asked, do we have a future? In reality, in order for, the, for us to, to uh, it, it's a common concept in the Pacific, uh, our people is, this is where you are. In order for you to move, to the, in order for you to see the future, you need to look to the past to inform you of the future. And that's a, a, a common concept that we've always had. And this is where we need to revisit the word contemporary. Contemporary is a, is a, is a word that says art made now. And when you look at our culture, we, we're dealing with an art form. Culture has always evolved. It's always evolving. The concept is the same, but it's the medium that changes. But your base is still the same, like the, the, the tabu necklace you did. You may have you you may have made it with new strings and new in in modern day, but the concept came from generations generations before, and that's what we need to look at to revisit and re, re, revisit the word contemporary because I would rather use living art because we we we're practicing the the forms of art that was passed on from generation to generation. So what what when you, when you look at the when you look at the word contemporary, contemporary means art made now by living people. One of the common things I used to do when I was at the NTV was at, I had this Lisa Rehana's uh, um, cloth outfit on, mm. and the Vanuatu uh, um, sculpture. I would go there and I said, which which do you think is contemporary? They would point to Lisa's work, Rihanna's work, and I said, "Why? Because that's 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 a newest made. That one's an old made before." And I said, "Would you surprise you to say that Lisa's work is actually older than the Vanuatu? How can that be?" And I said, "Because she chose to use denim jean, the modern material, whereas the Vanuatu people use the modern, the old." strings of before. Now, again, when you look at this, the question I ask is, what are the two of them called the contemporary, contemporary work? Because the Vanuatu artist chose to use the, his grandfather's method, great generation, and produced that, whereas Lisa used denim and tapa cloth. And because he used denim, that made it contemporary. And this is where we need to revisit, institutions need to revisit the word whether contemporary, whether artwork in the Pacific should be contemporary all along, or, or, it, or we remove the sub-racist colonial Putuanas, Malaysia, Polynesia, and Macronesia, and work a specific islander, but acknowledge each other's space with respect. And that's why it's important to have people like us in these institutional spaces is to be able to make those very nuanced mm-hmm. understandings and interpretations to the public because they just wouldn't have that insight. Yeah. Um, and uh, the other thing I wanted to say was um, just going back to that question of, um, you know, what I would say to the CEOs is if, um, you know, we, sh- we share a lot of similarities, um, Pacific people share a lot of similarities with First Nations people, like there's the similarities in, in our ways of being and, and ways of like um, behaving and customs. 
if if more first peoples were in leadership roles and in institutions, we wouldn't be having these conversations. Mm. <laughs> Definitely. It would be a redundant conversation. <laughs> Our conversation continues in part three of this episode with Auntie Sana, Auntie Lisa and Ruha. We'll see you there.